Welcome back to The Law. I am D.K. Williams, and this is episode 35. We're going to discuss a 1972 Supreme Court case called Kurt Flood versus Bowie Kuhn. So, Flood v. Kuhn. If you follow Major League Baseball, you've probably heard about this case. You're at least familiar with it. Kurt Flood was a very good Major League Baseball player, and Bowie Kuhn, and that's Bowie, like the Bowie knife, and Kuhn, but it's spelled K-U-H-N. He was the Major League Baseball commissioner. His name's on the case because he represents the entire league. Uh, the American League and the National League, and I think all the existing Major League Baseball teams at the time were named in the suit as well. But Bowie Kuhn's a good name to have on it since he was a commissioner. It's an important sports case, but it is also especially relevant today because it deals with Supreme Court precedent and the doctrine of stare decisis or stare decisis. That's been in the news a lot lately, and we're going to talk about that. Now, the court in this case, Flood versus Kuhn, admits that they made a bad decision decades ago, but they weren't going to overturn it because of this stare decisis doctrine. Stare decisis means we've already decided this, so we're not going to change it. We, we have to abide by what we already did, in essence. And there was a case from the Supreme Court about uh, 10 days ago or so, and we'll mention it, where the Supreme Court overturned a precedent. It's a pretty mundane case, but they nevertheless did that, and that's noteworthy whenever the Supreme Court does it. The progressives are expressing worry that they are, the conservatives are potentially laying down the groundwork in overturning precedent, which might let them overturn Roe versus Wade and maybe some other cases. So that's why it was in the newspapers. That's why it was in the news recently. <laughs> I said newspapers, like they're a thing. So since Kurt Flood versus Buikun deals with precedent, that's an issue. It's going to become an issue in the next several years, even more so. We're going to talk about it. As always, The Law with D.K. Williams is brought to you by the Launchpad Media Network. Always launching ideas in your direction. Find us at thelaunchpadmedia.com. And remember, follow me on social media, Twitter, at Blue Carp, that's me, and on Facebook.com slash Blue Carp. I'd love to hear from you. Please check out the Facebook page for the podcast as well. It's The Law with D.K. Williams. Like that, rate it if you would. And if you'd like to help keep the podcast going, you can donate at paypal.me slash The Law D.K. Williams. Wherever you're listening, like, comment, subscribe, and share if you are so inclined. The vote in this case was 5-3 in favor of Major League Baseball. There was only eight justices involved because William Powell took no part in the consideration or decision of the case. That's what they say when they don't do that. The majority opinion was written by Harry Blackman. He was joined by Potter Stewart and William Rehnquist. And Warren Berger and Byron White joined the opinion. So they're one of they're among the five. But they explicitly did not join part one. Part one of the opinion by Blackman is titled, or the section is titled, The Game. And it's several pages of an ode to how awesome baseball is. It's like Blackman is just declaring himself a baseball fanboy. And I find it amusing that two justices specifically disassociated themselves from that section. Not for any disagreement with any legal analysis, because there is none in that part of the opinion. Just because they kind of found it embarrassing, I would imagine. And it is. So Berger and White were the, the last of the five. Berger also wrote a separate concurrence. There were two dissents. One was written by William Douglas, and he was joined by William Brennan. A second dissent by Thurgood Marshall, also joined by William Brennan. So there's your five to three. The named participants, Curtis Flood. And he was represented by Arthur Goldberg, which is interesting because Goldberg was a former Supreme Court justice. He was on the Supreme Court from 62 to 65. Not a very long tenure for a Supreme Court justice. He resigned to become ambassador to the 
the United Nations for LBJ. So he took another job. And now he's practicing law in this case and representing Flood, and he's back before the Supreme Court. And this is from the case itself as they describe what's going on. Curtis Flood was born in 1938, began his major league career in 1956 when he signed a contract with the Cincinnati Reds for a salary of $4,000 for the season. Things obviously have changed since then, haven't they? He was traded to the St. Louis Cardinals before the 1958 season. Flood rose to fame as a center fielder with the Cardinals during the years 58 to 69. In those 12 seasons, he compiled a batting average of 293. His best offensive season was 1967 when he hit 335. He hit 301 or better in six of his 12 St. Louis years. He played in the 64, 67, and 68 World Series. He played airless ball in 1966, so no errors the entire season, and had a streak of 223 consecutive errorless games. So he's a hitter and a fielder. He was very well known. Flood has received seven Golden Glove awards. He was co captain of the team from 65 to 69 and ranks among the 10 major league outfielders possessing the highest lifetime fielding averages. But the story turns. At the age of 31, in October 1969, Flood was traded to the Phillies of the National League in a multiplayer transaction. He was not consulted about the trade. He was informed by telephone and received formal notice only after the deal had been consummated. In December, he complained to the commissioner of baseball, Ned Kuhn, and asked that he be made a free agent and be placed at liberty to strike his own bargain with any other major league team. His request was denied. So he filed suit among many uh, with causes of action, including that not being allowed to negotiate a deal with whoever he wanted to was an illegal restraint of trade pursuant to the Sherman Antitrust Act, and that's the gist of uh, this case. So he filed suit, but baseball kept playing, of course, right? So Flood declined to play for the Phillies in 1970, despite a $100,000 salary, and he set out the entire year. So after 1970, and remember this case hasn't got does not get to the Supreme Court until 1972. So after 1970, Philadelphia sold its rights to Flood to the Senators, Washington Senators. Washington and Flood were able to come to an agreement for 1971 at a salary of $110,000. So he's playing again in 1971. And just by way of comparison, $110,000 in 1971 is $694,000 in 2019. I included a link to the letter Flood wrote to Kuhn in the show notes. It's a good historical document. Might want to check it out. Bowie Kuhn was Major League Baseball Commissioner from 1969 to 1984. Before that, he was a lawyer for the league for about 20 years. So we've gone over those important facts in discussing Flood, and the legal analysis of the court deals with precedent largely, and that's why it's relevant today. Precedent, overturning precedent, the respect given to stare decisis, the idea that the current court is bound by what the prior court has already decided, been in the news lately. Now, the case that came out just a couple of weeks ago is Franchise Tax Board of California versus Hyatt. And anytime tax board is in the title of a case, probably not going to be that exciting. But this is the important part of it. Why Flood versus Kuhn is relevant today. So Justice Clarence Thomas wrote this opinion in this tax board case. The U.S. Supreme Court overruled precedent, overruled a case it had ruled on decades ago and held 5-4 that absent consent, a state can't be sued by private parties in another state's court. Okay, so it's kind of boring, right? So this was, it overruled a 1979 Supreme Court decision called Nevada versus Hall. So the actual holding of the case probably doesn't affect very many people very often. It's not a major case that's going to affect a lot of society, but why it's important is because the Supreme Court overruled itself. So in 2019, they overruled a 1979 Supreme Court case. And what Thomas said about it, in some, what I think is important, he wrote, stare decisis. 
does not compel continued adherence to this erroneous precedent. There you go. How he kind of sums up not giving stare decisis the weight that would keep the court from overturning his prior case. Now, Stephen Breyer wrote in a dissent, because remember, this was a 5-4 case. So Stephen Breyer, and he was joined by Ginsburg, Sotomayor, and Kagan, pretty much the liberal side of the current Supreme Court. So Breyer wrote, to overrule a sound decision like Hall is to encourage litigants to seek to overrule other cases. It is to make it more difficult for lawyers to refrain from challenging settled law, and it is to cause the public to become increasingly uncertain about which cases the court will overrule and which cases are here to stay. And he lays out that's the reason we have stare decisis, for, for stability purposes, right? But it doesn't take much imagination to realize the other cases about which they are concerned include Roe versus Wade. Heck, that's the one they are primarily worried about, I believe. And with the recent states effectively, some of the states, passing legislation that almost effectively bans abortions, you can see why this is a topic today. These states know they won't be enforced unless and until the Supreme Court agrees to hear one of them and takes that opportunity to overturn Roe. Now, I don't think that's likely, but that's the idea behind Georgia and Alabama and some of these other states' recent anti-abortion laws. They know they are not legit in light of Roe, but they want the Supreme Court to overturn return row. So that's the entire point behind these. They know they're not going in effect next week or next year or two years from now. They're just trying to get it to the Supreme Court. And for Roe versus Wade in particular, go to episode 11 of the law and we discuss that more in depth. And that's why the idea of stare decisis, when you adhere to previous Supreme Court precedent and when you don't, is important and very current. Now, it, mean, it literally means to stand by things decided in Latin. That's stare decisis. So the Supreme Court did stand by things decided in Flood versus Kuhn. They stood by a thing decided, even even as they admitted that thing was decided incorrectly. The dissent called them out on that. And in that case, the dissent included two famous liberal justices, Marshall and Brennan. Completely different facts, completely different time. But in Flood versus Kuhn, which we're talking about, two liberals said we should overturn precedent. But now, today, different atmosphere, different cases. The liberals are saying, hey, we can't be so ready to overthrow precedent. I find that mildly interesting. So today, uh, Major League Baseball here in May is well underway. This case, Flood case, really set the stage for opening Major League Baseball baseball rosters to free markets. Now, Flood lost this case, but because the Supreme Court upheld their prior wrongly decided precedent that they admitted. But this decision was still huge for players, even though this player, Kurt Flood, lost. The Supreme Court says over and over again that Congress can fix the problem the Supreme Court created. So even though Major League Baseball won this case, they were concerned that Congress might actually take up the Supreme Court's suggestion, pass legislation that would negatively affect Major League Baseball. So they didn't want that. So this case prompted Major League Baseball baseball to sit down with the players union and essentially eventually agree to what flood wanted once your contract is up you're a free agent flood had retired by then didn't affect him, but it changed things for future Major League Baseball players. And it's an important case because it shows the stupidity of deference to precedent when precedent is absurdly stupid. This case intentionally upheld bad precedent. The court, in essence, says, yeah, the Supreme Court case upon which we were relying from decades ago is really bad, but because of stare decisis, we're going to keep that really bad decision alive. And hey, if Congress doesn't like it, they can change it. They can fix our bad mistake that we are perpetuating today. That's my paraphrase, but it's pretty accurate. Now, the Supreme Court can't always throw it to Congress and say Congress can fix it, but they can here because the Supreme Court is interpreting a federal statute that Congress passed, and Congress can change a statute. So that's why the Supreme Court here can say Congress can fix their statute that we interpreted wrongly decades ago. 
They can tell us we did it wrong, even though we admit we did it wrong. And for one famous case of the Supreme Court overturning its own precedent, Brown versus Board of Education, which we discussed in Episode 8, overturned Plessy v. Ferguson, which created the separate but equal doctrine. We talked about that in Episode 7. Brown versus Board of Education rejected the separate but equal doctrine created by the Supreme Court. So check those out for more on those. But in this case, Flood versus Kuhn, great example of the Supreme Court not overturning bad precedent when they should. Now, the bad precedent that is being discussed in Flood versus Kuhn is Federal Baseball Club versus National League. It's a 1922 case. So 50 years before Flood versus Kuhn. The 1922 case was unanimous. It was written by Oliver Wendell Holmes. And it said that professional baseball was not subject to the Sherman Antitrust Act because professional baseball was not interstate commerce. Now we've talked about interstate commerce before quite a bit. Things changed after 1922 quite a bit. Now everything is interstate commerce. But back then they said it wasn't, even though applying legitimate interstate commerce jurisprudence to it, it probably was. But in that federal baseball club case, they kind of romanticized baseball. They said it wasn't interstate business. It was just a local activity. Part of Blackman's opinion here in Flood, he wrote the fanboy part where Berger and White specifically disassociated themselves from the part. Starts like this. You get an idea of this fanboyishness, this romanticism of baseball as something that transcends business or transcends interstate commerce, and it's it's a bit overboard. Here we go, Blackman wrote. It is a century and a quarter since the New York Nine defeated the Knickerbockers 23-1 on Hoboken's Elysian Fields with Alexander J. Cartwright as the instigator and the umpire. The teams were amateur, but the contest marked a significant date in baseball's beginnings. That early game ultimately led to the development of professional baseball and its tightly organized structure. The Cincinnati Red Stockings came into existence in 1869 upon an outpouring of local pride. The ensuing colorful days are well known. You get the idea. It goes on like that for pages. One more example. Blackman's fanboyish ode to baseball. He says, Then there are the many names, celebrated for one reason or another, that have sparked the diamond and its environs, and that have provided tinder for recaptured thrills, for reminiscence and comparisons, and for conversation and anticipation in season and off season. Ty Cobb, Babe Ruth, and I'm going to stop there because after Reuben, Ruth and Cobb, he lists 87 more players in the Supreme Court opinion. Tis a bit much. He, at the end of listing 89 complete players, he says, the list seems endless. Well, he gave it a good shot at making it endless. He also cites Casey at the bat, for goodness sakes. When he gets done with his tribute to baseball, he starts to discuss the legal issues. Discusses Flood's arguments about why he should be a free agent and why not being allowed to sign with any other team except the one that owns his rights, even though his contract is up, is a violation of federal antitrust laws as an unreasonable restraint on trade. Now, as libertarians, we can have another discussion about the existence of antitrust laws themselves, and we will probably do that. But leave that aside for now. Flood also makes an involuntary servitude argument. He says Major League Baseball is basically enslaving him in violation of the 13th Amendment. Now, I get the theory behind the involuntary servitude argument, but slaves don't get paid a salary of any kind, and they don't have the option of quitting and getting another job. So the comparison is not good, and the court doesn't give much time to that argument. But the romanticization of baseball definitely played a role in this case. The Supreme Court, citing the district court, when the district court said, here's some more fanboy stuff, but this time from the district court. Baseball has been the national pastime for over 100 years and enjoys a unique place in our American heritage. 
Major League Professional Baseball is avidly followed by millions of fans, looked upon with fervor and pride, and provides a special source of inspiration and competitive team spirit, especially for the young. Baseball's status in the life of the nation is so pervasive that it would not strain credulity to say the court can take judicial notice that baseball is everybody's business. To put it mildly and with restraint, it would be unfortunate indeed if a fine sport and profession, which brings surcease from daily travail and an escape from the ordinary to most inhabitants of this land, were to suffer in the least because of undue concentration by any one or any group on commercial and profit considerations. The game is on higher ground. It behooves everyone to keep it there. And I just gagged a little bit rereading that. It's ridiculous. It's it's got no place in a judicial opinion. But you can see this fanboy prejudice that some of these judges have about baseball. It's not a business. It's awesome. It's just romantic. It's just nice. But the district court did get this part correct, and then voluntary servitude part. That claim failed because of the absence of the essential element of this cause of action, a showing of compulsory service. Well, correct. Flood wasn't required to play for his old team. In fact, he didn't. He set out. He didn't play for anybody. So he wasn't required, wasn't compelled to do his job. And the district court was mildly prescient. It, it kind of knew where this was going. When the judge noted, the district court judge noted, and the Supreme Court opinion quoted, Judge Cooper, that's the district court judge, included a statement of personal conviction to the effect that, quote, negotiations could produce an accommodation on the reserve system, which would be eminently fair and equitable to all concerned, and that the reserve clause, that's the one that says you can't sign with anybody else other than the team that owns your rights, the reserve clause can be fashioned so as to find acceptance by player and club. Okay, that's eventually what happened. Like when the reserve the reserve clause was ended after Flood lost his case because, like we said, baseball didn't want Congress to address the issue. So like the Supreme Court says that they should and could, they had an interest in making changes to stop congressional action, and they eventually ended the reserve clause. The district court also wrote in criticizing the 1922 case that they're upholding, but the district court is bound to uphold because that's how it works. District courts can't overrule the Supreme Court. District court wrote, We freely acknowledge our belief that federal baseball, that's the 1922 case, was not one of Mr. Justice Holmes' happiest days. Oliver Wendell Holmes is generally revered as a great Supreme Court justice, but that was not one of his happiest days. And that, to use the Supreme Court's own adjectives, the distinction between baseball and other professional sports, which have not been given this exemption, is unrealistic inconsistent, and illogical. So he's acknowledging all that. While we should not fall out of our chairs with surprise at the news that federal baseball had been overruled, we are not at all certain the court, the Supreme Court, is ready to give them a happy dispatch. So the district court is indicating that the precedent is bad, it's unrealistic, inconsistent, and illogical. But the per district court pretty much has to abide by it. District court recognizes that and notes it's up to the Supreme Court to give it a happy dispatch which he didn't think they would do, and they didn't. So when the Supreme Court agreed to take the issue, they, they said, we're going to look at it in order to look, once again, at this troublesome and unusual situation. That's what they called it. It's, yeah, it's a troublesome and unusual situation they created. So Justice Holmes, in the federal baseball case, unanimous in 22, said that baseball games were purely state affairs, regardless of the interstate travel, and even though tickets were sold to the games, they were not commerce in the commonly accepted use of those words. The opinion does not represent, indeed, one of the court's happiest days. And again, as I've noted, the interstate commerce jurisprudence has gone way overboard since this 1922 case, starting with Rickard v. Filburn, which we discussed in episode 5. But I just find interesting that the, the Supreme Court, even in 1922, when this federal baseball opinion was released, the court had prior to that ruled that vaudeville performers traveling a theater circuit throughout the country were subject 
to interstate commerce regulation, as was a correspondence course that went through the mail. So there seems to be particularly singling out baseball as an exemption, even in 1922. The Supreme Court in flood, after discussing some of this history, they moved to a 1952 committee report from a congressional committee. So 52 was 20 years before this case was decided. And in this committee report, Congress said, or the committee did. The overwhelming preponderance of the evidence established baseball's need for some sort of reserve clause. Baseball's history shows that chaotic conditions prevailed when there was no reserve clause. Experience points to no feasible substitute to protect the integrity of the game or to guarantee a comparatively even competitive struggle. In other words, what they're saying is, Free markets are scary and we can't dictate what will happen, so screw that. Time, once again, as it always does, has proven that statist central planning is wrong. It doesn't work. In the words of Elsa from Frozen, let it go, people. Let it go. Embrace freedom. Let go of this compulsive need to control, which is exactly what the reserve clause was, and it couldn't have existed without government sanction of it. Back to the flood case, the Supreme Court says, the present case asks us to overrule the prior decision and with retrospective effect, hold the legislation, the antitrust statute, applicable. We think that if there are evils in this field, which now warrant application to it of the antitrust laws, it should be by legislation. Now, Marshall's dissent points out that any ruling could be made prospective only. It wouldn't have to be retroactive, which is what this, the majority is worried about right here. And they're saying that if we made a mistake, and they admit later that they did make a mistake, legislation should fix it. Congress should fix it. Majority opinion makes a big deal that since Congress never overruled that federal baseball case, that that must mean they approve of it. So not changing it means they approve of it is pretty weak, pretty weak argument. And the dissent points that out. The majority says, to kind of overcome that point, says, as long as the Congress continues to acquiesce, we should adhere to, but not extend, the interpretation of the act made in federal baseball. Majority opinion goes on to acknowledge and talk about how no other professional sport has this antitrust exemption, and the only reason baseball has it is because they created it. They admit that really makes no sense, but they insist that Congress should fix their, the court's mistake. And that's the essence of it. The Supreme Court admitted their precedent was bad, but they're going to uphold it and keep applying it because Congress never fixed it. This may be one of the worst applications of stare decisis ever. The Supreme Court concludes, We continue to be loath, 50 years after federal baseball, to overturn the case due Judicially, when Congress, by its positive inaction, has allowed those decisions to stand for so long and far beyond inference and implication, has clearly evinced a desire not to disapprove them legislatively. Okay, two big things that jump out at you right here. Positive inaction. Congress has undertaken positive inaction. That doesn't even make any sense. So silence is consent. They haven't passed anything to change what we did. Therefore, they agree with it. That's that's weak. That's nonsense. And the dissent points that out. Doing nothing is an action. Positive inaction. That's that's insane. It's sophistry. Again, the dissent criticizes them for that. And then the sentence or the phrase that Congress has expressed, a desire not to disapprove. When you resort to a double negative, not to disapprove, you're reaching. The Douglas dissent, which Brennan joins, sums it up. The court's decision in Federal Baseball Club versus National League, made in 1922, is a derelict in the stream of the law that we, its creator, should remove. Only a romantic view of a rather dismal business account over the last 50 years would keep that derelict in midstream. Beautiful. And then the final sentence of that dissent, the unbroken silence of Congress should not prevent us from correcting our own mistakes. Nailed it. 
And now it's an issue again. The concept of stare decisis issue again, as we discussed, since there's a movement among state legislators and others who want to overrule Roe versus Wade. And the current Supreme Court just overturned that precedent in the California Tax Board case. It's freaking out some progressives. The Daily Beast in discussing this California Tax Board case where they overruled precedent five to four wrote, quote, the arch conservative Clarence Thomas laid out a roadmap for overturning decisions permitting abortion, Roe versus Wade, same sex marriage and more. Now, I don't think any of that's going to happen, but fear motivates votes. And the Daily Beast and others are overblowing the issue to get ratings, views and clicks. And to call Clarence Thomas an arch-conservative always jumps out at me because would they ever call Sotomayor an arch-liberal or an arch-progressive? They only use arch for conservative, and there's a reason for that. They don't think anybody could be too progressive or too liberal. But to quote Thomas again, Stare decisis does not compel continued adherence to erroneous precedent. I'm with Clarence. I'm D.K. Williams, and this has been The Law, Episode 35, Kurt Flood versus Bowie Kuhn. We're brought to you by the Launchpad Media Network, always launching ideas in your direction. Find us at thelaunchpadmedia.com. Let me know what you think. Send me some comments. You can hit me up on Twitter at BlueCarp, Facebook.com slash BlueCarp, and the Facebook page for this podcast. Just look for The Law with D.K. Williams. And if you'd like to help make a contribution to the podcast, you can donate at paypal.me slash thelawdkwilliams. Government is not a tool of liberation, my friends. It is a tool of oppression. Freedom is dangerous. Live dangerously.